Hello and welcome to the Salty Club podcast with your host, Caitlin Creeper. We have a different kind of offering today. This is not an interview, not a meditation, it's not a take a walk, but it's actually a replay of a workshop we hosted on the club a few months ago by Alex Scott, who is a narcissistic abuse healing coach. So as implied in the title and by what she does for a living, this whole workshop talks about abusive relationships. So it can be triggering, it can be confronting. Fronting, so listener discretion is advised to decide if this is a podcast for you. And if it is a podcast for you, I just want to send you so much love if you're going through this and I hope this recording can be helpful in some way. Hello, welcome. My dog wants to say hi. His name is Jax. <laughs> He's the cutest Cocker Spaniel in the world. Um, and just so that you guys know who I am, my name is Alex. Thank you so much for joining us uh, here at the Salty Club today for a quick little chat on toxic relationships, how to tell if you're in one, how to tell if your friend's in one maybe, um, and then how to actually get started healing. Why are they so addicting? Why do we go back to them even when we logically know they're not good for us? We're going to be talking about it all. So um, if you're a note taker, and you want to you want to take notes you're welcome to do so today there's going to be a lot of juicy information but before we get started i'd love to do a little bit of nervous system regulation if you have no idea who i am or or you know have never maybe lurked my instagram before i talk about the nervous system every day because at the end of the day it is the number one step to healing trauma and getting out of your survival mode and tapping into inner peace and really reconnecting with your intuition and so many other wonderful things that we're going to be talking about today. And regulating your nervous system can be done so easily. So today we're just going to be doing a few deep breaths together. And we're going to be feeling the contact points of our bodies with the surface below us. And then we're going to get in to this really juicy topic we have. So if it feels safe, you are welcome to close your eyes with me. If not, you're welcome to leave your eyes open and you can kind of just soften your gaze. The other thing I'll invite you to do is to place a hand on your heart and then another hand on your belly. And all we're going to be doing is starting with some very basic belly breathing. So we're going to be breathing in through our nose, inflating our belly with air, almost like you're filling up a balloon in your belly. Hold at the top and then exhale out the mouth with pursed lips. And again, breathing in through the nose, filling the belly. Slight hold at the top. And then exhale out the mouth. Three more like that, breathing in. And hold. And exhale. And breathing in. Hold. Exhale. Last one, breathing in. Take another inhale sip at the top of the breath. Hold. And exhale. And then allow your breath to come back to a natural rhythm for you. 
And as you sit here, just take your attention to the different contact points that your body has with the surface beneath you, whether that's a chair or maybe you're laying down. And just identifying like, where are my feet? What are my feet touching? What's the temperature they're feeling? Is it cool? Is it warm? What's the texture? Is it soft? Is it hard? Is it fluffy, like on carpet or a blanket? Is it smooth? And then bringing the awareness up to your seat, your hips. On your next exhale, give yourself permission to let gravity sink you into that surface below you even more. Really feel held here. Give your weight over to the surface below you. And then if you have back support, just acknowledging where your back is in contact with that surface. Noticing if there's a difference from the left side to the right side. And then bring the awareness up into the neck. And if it feels good for you, you can take some slight stretches. Bending the head over towards one shoulder. And maybe the other side. And a nice little gentle neck roll, just listening to what your body needs today and honoring it. Maybe reverse that neck roll, go the other way. Bringing the back to center. And just taking a moment to give yourself some love, thanking yourself for showing up today, for being here, for taking the plunge to learn about a very serious topic. Because knowledge is power and wisdom brings us peace, right? So thanking yourself for being here for you today. And when you're ready, open your eyes. Ah, feels so good just to breathe. Feels so good just to breathe. So just to let you know who I am, like I said, my name is Alex. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm a narcissistic abuse recovery coach. So I focus on helping my clients to heal from narcissistic partners and narcissistic parents. And just a little bit about my story, um, I got to where I am today by making a load of relationship mistakes. Um, I, you know, got married at 20, divorced at 23, and then thinking I was ready to date again, um, Bumble and Tinder were like brand new apps. So I was like, yeah, I'll get on a dating app, you know, it's time, put myself out there again. And um, lo and behold, I got into a, a cycle of really unhealthy relationships. And the most unhealthiest one, I actually was dating a gentleman for a year and eight months total. And about five months into that relationship, the unmasking started to happen. And if you've been in a narcissistic relationship before, you kind of know, like within three to five months, that's really when they can't fake it anymore, right? You start to see them fall apart at the seams. And so um, that was the first time I had at least caught him cheating on me. 
And um, they have, again, if you're familiar with the narcissistic abuse cycle, I was blamed for it. I took a lot of responsibility for his cheating and I went back to the relationship. And this continued on, like I said, for that year and eight months with the narcissistic abuse cycle happening. And we're going to dig into that today. And then I finally got to a point to where I confronted him about it. I was like, at this point in our relationship, I found out he had been to court ordered therapy because of some abuse. You know, he had, he had violently assaulted a, a woman in a club out here in Los Angeles. And so that sent him to court ordered therapy because he got arrested, had to go to trial, all of that. And um, while he was in court ordered therapy, he was diagnosed with NPD with borderline traits. And so I had just scratched the surface when he had told me that, right? I, I didn't know what those words meant. So of course I headed to Google, put on my little FBI hat. And I was like, what is this? Right. And you start, yeah, you start Googling these terms till the wee hours of the morning. Like what is gaslighting? What is triangulation? What are the signs of narcissism? What is the narcissistic abuse cycle? And then you get into this lovely conundrum that I call the denial phase where you're like, are they really a narcissist or are they just, do they have unhealthy habits? Right. And you start doubting your own experience. And so as I started learning all of these different signs and the abuse cycle, I started to realize like, wait a second, I have a parent that checks all of these boxes too. So I went to my half sister. She's nine years older. We have the same narcissistic parent, but two different fathers. And, um, you know, I started confiding in her about what I was experiencing and what, you know, I had started to learn about the signs of narcissism and our mom. And she was like, oh yeah, 100%. Um, in fact, my, my parent was diagnosed when I was in high school and was put on medication that they refused to take. And then they stopped going to therapy shortly thereafter. Of course, as we know, narcissists don't like being told that, you know, they're the common denominator of their experience. Right. So, um, if I'm going to speed up now and we fast forward to my story now, I've been in this industry and helping people heal the trauma left over from narcissistic abuse uh, since 2020. And also in 2020, I officially cut out my narcissistic parent for the last time. And it'll be three years since I've gone no contact with them in August. So I share my story with you just to say that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And our stories really empower one another to confront the ickiness that we all so love to avoid, right? And also some of the internalized shame that a lot of survivors of narcissistic abuse can feel because, you know, we start to beat ourselves up. Why didn't I pay attention to the signs sooner? Why didn't I leave sooner? What's wrong with me for even being in this relationship? And that language, when we talk to ourselves that way, we know, you know, in this, in this world, I like to say it's not helpful, right? My, my motto is if beating yourself up worked, it would have worked by now, right? And so just a little bit of psychoeducation, what the internal family systems branch of psychology shows us is that when we can actually turn towards the part of ourselves that we might feel shameful of or embarrassed about or judgmental towards, when we love on those parts, instead of beating them up, we actually can soothe those parts. And so I just encourage you today for any of you who might be experiencing anxiety and you're like, oh, I hate that I'm anxious, right? Or maybe you're experiencing jealousy and you're like, oh, I'm a bad person if I have these jealous feelings. I encourage you to love on those aspects of self instead of shame them. Because really, those are parts of your inner child that are crying out for someone to just sit with them and let them express, right? 
Okay, so that's who I am. That's what I do. Let's jump into all the info I want to share with you ladies today. And of course, we're going to start at the very beginning, right? This kind of always reminds me of Sound of Music. Let's start at the beginning. Okay, so signs of abusive relationships. With narcissistic abuse, and this kind of crosses over into a few of the other cluster B personality types, but there is a specific cycle of abuse that is so cyclical, you can start to predict it. And those four phases of the abuse cycle are love bomb. The second phase is devalue. The third phase is discard. And the fourth phase is Hoover. And yes, Hoover like the vacuum. We're going to talk about it in a second. So the first phase is love bomb. And we hear about this all the time, right? Love bombing. If anyone watches Ted Lasso, they even talked about it in this season, which I thought was super cute. Um, but love bombing has, it's very nuanced. You know, the, the big loud versions of love bombing are the constant contact, constant compliments. You know, where have you been all my life? You're the perfect person for me, right? But then there's these more sneaky, sneaky ways of love bombing that can show up like future faking, right? Someday I really want to take you to this place. Someday I, you know, when we get married, we can move here, right? And they start to paint this idealistic future. And the sneakiest form of love bombing is mirroring. And it's quite literally holding up a mirror to yourself. And this is where I always love to comfort the people that come to me to heal and say, you fell in love with a version of yourself, babes. Because that's exactly what mirroring is, right? You, they study you. They start to see in the, the narcissist when they have a new supply, they start to see, oh, this is what this is what makes this person tick, right? This is exactly what they need to feel loved. And as they gather that data on you, they start to mirror it back to you. And so the way that you love initially is how they start to love you. The different habits and interests you have, they start to share those habits and interests. We've seen with science and as we've studied narcissistic tendencies that the mirroring can even be as subtle as hand gestures. They'll start to mimic hand gestures and even verbiage. So if you have like a catchphrase or something you say, for me, I, I say word a lot, like word, right? Okay. <laughs> and so that's something that if you're a, a you know, eight nineties kid, you say that, but not everyone says that still. And so something as simple as that, they can start to mimic certain little phrases that you use because the whole goal of love bombing for a narcissist is to establish a false sense of intimacy and a false sense of rapport, which means trust, so that as they start to abuse you, you already are justifying it. They just had a bad day. They're going through a rough time. They didn't really mean it, right? Um, and so that's the whole, that's the whole goal of love bombing. The second phase is the devalue phase, which is also known as the emotional discard phase. And this is when the narcissist starts to shame you for how you be right. And this can be anything from the way you dress to the way you do your hair or makeup to the different, the ways that you talk. Like I remember feeling nitpicked and, and criticized is kind of the word that people feel. It's like, you're criticizing me over this, that, and the other thing, but it's not criticism in the sense that it's constructive. It's just cutting you down. It's shaming you for being who you are because the goal of the narcissist in the devalue phase, there's a few goals. One is to get you to conform to how they want you to show up. They want you to be an extension of themselves. They don't view you as an individual. And this is true for both parents and partners, right? 
And so what they do is they use the shaming to force you to feel, for lack of a better way to put it, disgust and like you're not good enough with who you are authentically. And so you start to dress the way they want you to dress, the way that they want you to dress. You start to wear your makeup, do your hair the way they want you to wear your makeup, do your hair. You start to talk the way they want you to talk. You start to only hang out with the friends that they approve of, right? Which this is also very common. Narcissists want to isolate you because the less support that you have, the easier it is for them to control you. So they'll start making fun of your friends. They'll start telling you like, you know, that you're too good for these people. You shouldn't have them in your life. And this will even transfer over into your family. I can't stand being around your family. Really? They're holding you back. You really should just spend more time with me. Right. And they do these things again to get you away from your support system. Um, so one of the aspects of uh, the emotional discard is to get you to conform to their way of being. And the other thing that is their goal in this phase is to get you to think that you're the source of the problems. That's another reason they shame. This is also where all the gaslighting, the triangulating, and triangulating can sound like, well, my ex would do it. Well, my ex did this, right? Or this other person does it. So why don't you do it, right? It's this guilt trippy feeling. Um, and they want you to think that you're the issue, you're the abuser, you're the crazy one, because the more confused a narcissist can keep you, the less likely you are to, to see the, really what's happening and get out of the situation. So it's all like these abuse tactics are layered because it's all designed to keep you in your head, questioning yourself instead of seeing what's really happening in this black and white type. This is what you're doing to me. And this is why I'm feeling this way. They just want you to go what I call internal. Oh my God, am I crazy? Oh my God, am I really making this happen right now? Am I misremembering? That is the goal of the devalue phase. The third phase is the discard, which is the physical discard. So this is where they cheat on you. This is where they stonewall, they silent treatment you. This is where they ghost, they just disappear. Um, they can kick you out of the house. There's, there's so many different ways that a narcissist can physically discard, but the whole goal of the discard is to basically ignite all of your abandonment and neglect wounds, right? Which causes that internal trauma to be ignited so much more, which means that you'll usually chase, right? We usually try and like, oh my God, what do I need to do to become the right person for you? Right. And then the fourth phase is Hoover which like I said, is nicknamed after the vacuum Hoover, quite literally, because the goal of the Hoover phase is to suck you back in, come back to me, right? And so this is how um, they, they really start to screw with your mind here because they'll come back and they'll start to lurk your social media. They might show up on your doorstep. They might show up at your workplace or places that you frequent and they know you're going to be there, right? This is when they start to text you like really usually low effort things, hi, I miss you. What are you doing? Like really low effort, like breadcrumbs to see if you'll acknowledge them. This is also where they'll whip out all of the sweet nothings. I promise I'll never do it again. I'm so sorry for everything I've done. Just take me back. If you really loved me, you'd give me another chance again, right? Do you like my acting? <laughs> um, and so the other thing is, is they start to bleed the Hoover phase into the love bomb phase. And so they'll, this is sometimes it can get as wild as like an engagement. They'll like whip out a ring and be like, will you marry me? I'm, pro I'm pronouncing, you know, I'm professing my love for you, right? Large purchases can happen here. Um, false promises of going to therapy. They might even start going to therapy and then really quickly leave. So again, there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of nuance to all of these different signs. And 
the really frustrating part for survivors of these dynamics is that it is up to us. It is up to us to see the light. And then it is up to us to put a stop to it because the reality is this cycle, I call it the merry-go-round of chaos, right? Like it just goes on repeat over and over and over again until the survivor puts a stop to it, not the abuser. The abuser is never going to stop. That's why it's called narcissistic supply. They want to take from you. This is that vampire archetype. And if you listen to our episode the other day with Salty Club the, on the podcast, we talked about that, right? They want to suck the life out of you. They want to take from you what they can get from you. So of course, they're never going to be the ones to stop. And so that's why no contact is so necessary. And if you have a kid with them and you can't go no contact, we want to limit contact to text and email only. So you have a paper trail for protection purposes, right? So those are the signs of the abuse cycle. The next thing that really, when we look at two things, when I have a person come to me and they're like, I'm not sure if they're a narcissist. The first question I ask is this, have you seen the narcissistic abuse cycle on repeat? And the second thing is, are they willing to change or not? Are they willing to change or not? A true narcissistic person is never, ever, ever going to take responsibility and they aren't going to care about evolving for their own growth. They just aren't. That's quite literally the basis of narcissistic personality disorder. When we look at the disorder from a diagnosis lens, um, the inner vow that a narcissist makes to themselves is to avoid shame at all costs. This is why they use the abuse tactics they use. They refuse to take accountability because they can't feel shame. They refuse to take responsibility for how they've hurt you because that would make them feel shame right? They refuse to go to therapy because then they're going to have to be held accountable for how they're showing up, which means they feel shame, right? This is why they triangulate. This is why they gaslight. This is why they blame shift. And this is why nothing can ever be their fault. They don't want to feel shame. The other uh, side of narcissism is fueling their ego. So it's these two things combined, which is why they have the narcissistic supplies and they supply hop, right? And this is true again for both for both parents and partners. And you'll hear me say that a lot here because as we go into why these are so addicting, you'll start to see the, the correlation between childhood trauma and getting into narcissistic relationships, which we'll unpack more in a minute. So the four stages of healing from narcissistic abuse are denial, acceptance, the trauma work, and then the embodiment. And this is my version because there's so many different versions of like, here are the stages of healing. This is my boiled down version. One, denial. This is where we we are the Googling and binging content and YouTube videos to the wee hours of the morning, right? When we are in denial, we are researching, we are educating because we are denying that this person is truly narcissistic at first, right? We're like, oh my gosh, we're learning about this and we're scared to really accept the fact that, okay, this person is who they are and they're going to be who they are, right? So we overconsume, we kind of become obsessed with like being able to diagnose someone at first. And that's really when we're in the denial phase. When we get into the acceptance phase, we're no longer feeling the fuel to like obsessively educate and look into these things because now it's like, okay, the facts are this person follows this abuse cycle. The facts are this person is refusing to change. So now what am I going to do about it? And that's really when you know you've gotten into the acceptance phase. You're like, okay, it's up to me. It's up to me to go no contact. It's up to me to find a safe exit strategy and get out of this situation. I also like to call this the plotting your escape time, right? Because it really is that. You can't just have a normal breakup with a narcissistic person. You quite literally have to plot your escape like a chess match. 
Um, and then this is really when we start to feel a little bit of empowerment come online because it's like, okay, I don't want this for me anymore. So what am I going to do now? Right. It's that kind of mindset. The third phase is the trauma work and the trauma work really, if we were going to like use that as the umbrella term and, and figure out what the steps are in this category, it's regulating the nervous system, which we just did together at the start of this call. But when we are regulating our nervous system and self-soothing, it's so much more than just feeling good. We're exiting our survival mode of fight, flight, freeze, fawn. We're tapping into what's known in the psychology world as your window of tolerance, which isn't a super sexy name. But what that means is when you are in your window of tolerance, you're less triggered. You're more intuitive. You feel inner peace. You feel calm and grounded in your body, right? You're able to experience pleasure. You're able to experience play and curiosity and compassion in that window of tolerance. And trauma survivors have a very small window of tolerance. This is why we're triggered. This is why we constantly stay in the survival state. And I say it's kind of like a uh, infinity sign, like a figure eight of chaos, because it's like, we swoop back and forth between like intense anxiety of like, oh my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen into depression? It's like, I can't get out of bed. I just want to sleep all day. Right. And it's this like back and forth that a lot of trauma survivors kind of stay in because the nervous system gets exhausted from being anxious all the time. So then it causes us to crash into a freeze fawn and then we go back and forth. Right. So it's like when we can actually heal the nervous system and enter our window of tolerance and then increase our window of tolerance by regulating daily. We're less triggered. We're calm way more often, right? We can handle chaos around us without it, you know, bleeding into our energy, which is what we want, right? Um, and so that's the first step of trauma work, followed by developing the relationship with self. So I, the reason I talk about this so much is, like I said a moment ago, in the abuse cycle, when we are pushed to conform, we self-abandon. We self-abandon our authentic selves. So this might sound silly, but we need to re-embrace our authentic selves. What's my favorite ice cream? What's my favorite food? What do I like to do? What are my hobbies? How do I like to dress? How do I like to do my hair? How do I like to do my makeup? How do I like to speak? What are the kind of jokes that I like? What's the kind of media that I like, right? When we are in a narcissistic relationship, our authentic selves aren't honored. They aren't respected. And so that's what I mean by self-abandonment. In order to survive the abusive situation with the narcissist, we self-abandon and conform to the narcissist's way of being in order to avoid more and more abuse. You see what I'm saying? And so a lot of trauma work after we heal the nervous system is reconnecting with our authentic, our authentic selves and loving on them. And then the fourth step of healing is the embodiment aspect, right? We're embodying our authentic selves in the external world. We're embodying our boundaries. We're embodying our no. We're embodying our daily practice of how I can show up and honor my needs and desires today. So those are the four stages of healing. I want to come up for water, for air here. I'm going to take a sip. If anyone has any questions on what I've shared so far, please feel free to pop them in the chat. And then next, we're going to go into why these relationships feel addicting. I just want to open the floor for any questions in case anyone wants to pop them in the chat. All right. So we'll move on to why these relationships feel so addicting. So how many of you have heard of a trauma bond? I'm just curious. Have you heard that term before? We hear this all the time with narcissistic relationships. It's a trauma bond. But what does that mean? Trauma bonds are bonds that mimic trauma we have already experienced. 
this is what's fascinating to me. There is a very high, high, high correlation with children who had narcissistic parents being attracted to narcissistic partners. But then I get a few folks who come into my world and they're like, but I love my parents. Like we're fine. So I don't, that's, that doesn't resonate with me. I didn't have a narcissistic parent and I'm like, okay, great. First of all, amazing. So happy for you that that's not your story. And this is where we get into a lack of education on what trauma is, because even if you didn't, if you had a wonderful childhood where you're like, you know, I felt safe going to them the majority of the time to express my emotions and, you know, have heart to hearts and all of that good stuff. Great. Now, what we do know is that in early childhood, particularly between the ages of zero and seven, so when you first come out of the womb to the age of of seven, and I like to say even eight, nine, it kind of bleeds into there because childhood development is not an exact science where like every child stops at age seven when the theta brain state, which is really what we're talking about here with these ages, right? But in those earliest years, our nervous systems are are learning our environment, right? The moment you come out into the womb, the nervous system is collecting data. Like, how do I need to show up here to survive in my family dynamic, right? And so when we have what's known as little t trauma in childhood, which could be a parent dismissing your needs or a parent not being able to regulate their emotions so they lash out at you, or even this like super popular, this was like old school, like let your kid cry it out in the crib, right? Leave them alone, let them self-soothe. We know now that babies actually can't self-soothe. So when we when we do not co-regulate with them, which means baby cries, parent comes, and it's like, shh, you're okay. And they like, you know, hold, and I wish you could see me, but I'm like, hold, and you get it. This is co-regulating. That's what that is. We need to do that for our babies because they aren't de- at a developmental stage where they can regulate their own nervous systems. They don't know how to do that, right? For some of you with me today as adults, you're like, I don't even know what that means, right? And so when you're a baby, you are incapable of regulating your own emotions and your own nervous system, which is why you cry so that the parent can come and soothe you via co-regulation by cuddling, shushing, singing a lullaby. And quite literally, those are all still ways you can regulate your nervous system now. So when in doubt, if you have a kid or maybe you've been around babies before, treat yourself like a baby when you're triggered. Quite literally, that's what your nervous system needs, right? Container work. Shh caressing, right? It's all soothing to the nervous system. So even something as as simple as that, if you had a wonderful childhood, but these were these little things that happened to you between the ages of zero and eight, that can create attachment trauma, neglect, abandonment. So even though you weren't actually abandoned where like your family left the home, you know, and you were in it still, we can still have abandonment wounds. And the reason that This is the reason we subconsciously seek these out. When we have unresolved trauma, our nervous system knows how to survive in that dynamic. So it goes to work to operate in familiar dynamics, even if we logically don't want it to. Because the reality is our logical part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex, first of all, not even done fully developing till we're 25. Okay. So And that part of the brain, just so that there's some clarity here, it's in charge of logical decision-making and perspective taking, like I see your point of view, right? And so when we have an overactive survival brain, which is the first part of our brain to form when we're in utero, right? 
When we have an overactive amygdala, um, what that does is it means that we're in our survival state. So our nervous system is accustomed to being there. And this is why so many people on the surface will say things like, I'm attracted to the toxic ones, but the healthy ones feel boring. This is why. Because what your nervous system is used to, it's going to subconsciously seek out until the trauma work is being done. So I'm curious to know if there's any questions on that, okay? And if so, while I'm sharing any of these, you're welcome to pop them in the chat, I will answer. So unresolved trauma is one reason why people gravitate towards these relationships. And two, this is also why they feel so addicting because really what's happening is your body is seeking out a similar environment as an attempt to heal. It thinks if I can get this person to love me, I will finally feel okay, I will finally be healed. That's not necessarily the conscious thought you're having, but that is the wiring that's happening in the nervous system and the subconscious mind. All right. But the reality is that it doesn't actually need the narcissist to love you and acknowledge you and treat you well. It needs you to love you and acknowledge you and treat you well, to soothe. And that is quite literally what trauma work is. It's creating the space with yourself to fully process your emotions and hold space so that as you're, you know, the different traumatic memories that you're processing, the different wounds that you're processing, you become the superhero of your own life, which is why that relationship with self becomes so powerful. So that's one reason. The other thing is emotional addiction. And this is when I learned this, I was like mind blown because I started paying attention to all of the different aspects of life where I'm emotionally addicted to some really not fun things, right? So at first, um, when we're emotionally addicted to chaos, this is where like, I don't know if anyone in this room relates to, it, and this is a safe space, but I was so used to, um, dramatic relationships because of what I experienced with my narcissistic parent. There's these high highs and low lows. And so just like, um, you have to digest your food, you also have to digest your hormones. And here's why I'm sharing this with you. When we have emotional addiction, that's what it's called. It's like, I'm addicted to feeling bad about myself. I'm addicted to feeling chaos in my relationships. I'm addicted to suffering. I'm addicted to this being challenging, right? Again, not logical thoughts, but really what's happening here is because your body has gotten used to the high highs of like oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, when you're having sex with your narcissistic partner, when you're connecting, when you're cuddling, when you're kissing, when you're having good times, that's all fine and dandy, but then you crash into the rest of the abuse cycle, right? The devalue, the discard, the Hoover. And that's when you're getting a lovely cocktail of stress hormones, adrenaline, and cortisol. And this huge contrast where you're like on a high one day and then crash and burning the next, your nervous system and your body gets used to these highs and lows the same way that an addict's body gets used to the highs and lows of whatever substance that they abuse. It's the same. It really is the same. And so this is why regulating your nervous system and moving your body is so important because when we can move the body, when we can process the emotions, then we allow all of the hormones addicted to those emotions to be processed more efficiently in the body, right? So just like you're like, I'm going to go to the gym so that I can burn off the calories. You're also like moving your body so that you can burn off the hormones associated with your emotions. You're helping your body filter through that a lot more efficiently. 
But the emotional addiction aspect, so we can go back to narcissistic partners for this because again, we're so used to high highs and low lows that when we're with a safe partner, for example, and it's not high highs and low lows, it's just we're going, we're stable, we're secure. It feels really freaky at first. You're like, I'm not used to this. I'm not used to stable and secure. Like, why aren't we fighting more? Where's the drama? Is this not passionate enough? What's going on here, right? And so sometimes if if we didn't do the trauma work, sometimes people can get lucky and they get into a healthy relationship, but they notice they're like, I'm trying, I'm picking fights because that's what I'm used to, right? I'm used to fighting. And so I'm nitpicking things because I'm trying to disrupt the chaos. So my nervous system feels safe in the chaos. You see what I'm saying here? It's, it's for lack of a better way to put it, it's ass backwards, right? And this is when we need to make sure that we're doing the trauma work because otherwise we will start to bring those patterns with us. Another way emotional addiction used to show up for me, and I want to share this because I think this is way more common and I don't think people talk about this enough. I don't think people talk about this enough at all. I was emotionally addicted to shaming myself. Because of my conditioning from my childhood with my narcissistic parent, where I was always compared to my half sister who could do no wrong. Like she was very much the golden child and I was the scapegoat in the narcissistic parent dynamic. It was like, your sister's so beautiful. Look at how she dresses, dresses the way your sister, you know, dress and like all these things. And so I very much grew up feeling like an ugly duckling because I was always compared to my sister. And so the way this showed up is, of course, I'm dating my narcissistic ex. I know that he's cheating on me about every two to three weeks. It happened so often, like as I started to learn his patterns and also as I started to become, I'm going to side note here, you guys, being in a narcissistically or abusive relationship or a toxic relationship at all will bring out your crazy, right? It will bring out the most unhealthy version of you. And this is when I was like a psycho FBI agent in the sense that like, I knew who he was cheating on me with because I would lurk his Instagram and figure it out just by how he was commenting on people's pages and how people were commenting on his pages. And like, that is not something that I share from a place of like, I'm proud that I went that psycho, but I want to share it because I, again, I don't think people talk about it enough. Like it is a normal thing to do. You are trying to soothe by figuring it out, right? And so not only would I do that, but two, I would I would start to compare myself to his new supply. She's prettier than me. She's more successful than me. She dresses better than me. Her hair is better than mine. Where is that familiar? My childhood. And so I was emotionally addicted to comparing myself and shaming myself. And so usually the next question I get after I share that is, well, how did you stop? And and there's a few ways. One, yes, I regulated my nervous system whenever I felt myself gravitating towards that, like I'm picking up my phone. And sometimes your thumb has like a mind of its own, right? Like it's already opening Instagram before your mind realizes what's happening, right? You're like, how did I get here again? And so when that started to come up for me, yes, I would regulate. And then I would go into some loving self-interrogation is what I called it. What are you really looking for here? Oh, I'm looking to make myself feel better because I'm hoping that if I look at this chick's picture, I'm going to feel better about myself. Like I'm prettier. I'm more successful. Okay. Do you really think that that's where this is going to go? No. Okay. So what are we going to do instead? I'm going to put my phone down and go for a walk right now. (laughs) Like that's basically how I would coach myself out of that emotional addiction suffering. The third reason I told you this was going to be juicy. Lots of notes up in here. Third reason we go back 
to these unhealthy relationships is this brain phenomena called the fading affect bias, fading affect bias. And I'm obnoxiously pronouncing affect because it's not effect, it's affect, A-F-F-E-C-T. The fading affect bias. This is when your brain plays tricks on you. Does anyone feel like they've been through that before, right? Yeah. The fading affect bias is when your brain has temporary amnesia about the abuse that you've been through while simultaneously romanticizing the relationship. So you quite literally forget, was it really that bad? Am I misremembering? Did they really do that or am I misremembering? Does that feel, feel familiar? Does that sound familiar, right? Yeah. This is the fading affect bias. And so the way that I like to tell my clients to get ahead of this and please feel 1000% familiar, yeah. Um, the way that I like to tell my clients to get ahead of this is by either writing yourself a letter or what I think is the best way is recording a video of yourself fresh out of the relationship or on the premise about to break up with them. Like right when you're like, we're doing this and record a video being like, this is what they've done. This is why you're doing this. Stay strong. And you know, for I'll be really honest when I was doing this, because I did this both for my narcissistic parent and my ex, I would cry because of the pain that I was feeling, right? And so there was something about those moments where after I left my narcissistic ex or after I cut out my parent where the fading affect bias would creep up and I would watch that video and just see me in so much pain and tears being like, don't go back, don't go back. We're sticking to this and this is why. It was so much easier for me to be like, I see you, babe. Like, okay, I'm not gonna do that to myself again, right? So that's a fun little, I mean, fun. That's a little trick that I like to give you guys, and again, the people I work with, because if we can set ourselves up for success before we get to needing that support, it's so much easier to stick to it, right? We all know exercise makes life better. Our mood, our energy, just our general outlook on life improves. But sometimes it can feel like too much of a mission to get to a gym or to commit to a full hour workout. You're busy, I'm busy, life is hectic. The Salty Club makes it easier than ever to sharpen your mind, body and soul with online equipment-free workouts starting as short as 7 minutes all the way up to 50-minute classes. You can choose one-off classes or commit to a whole program where every class is planned out for you for a series of weeks. And the best bit? You'll be able to talk and share with other women in our group chat for that extra dose of motivation. The Salty Club is $19 a month, but you can try it absolutely free for one whole month with the exclusive code to this podcast. You'll go to the website, thesalty.club, and then the code you will use is sclubpod. So S-C-L-U-B-P-O-D. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about why these relationships are actually toxic because it's way like, yes, emotional trauma, 100%, but it also starts to, to screw your body up. Anyone struggle with insomnia, IBS, constipation, acid reflux, chronic muscle tension, right? These are all Crohn's disease, even. These are all physical illnesses that can, I'm not saying 100% are, but they can be linked to unresolved trauma. For me and mine, my physical ailments, adrenal fatigue, which adrenal fatigue happens because your adrenals are in charge of spitting out your hormones. 
That's what produces them in the body. And before, when I was saying we're in this constant survival state of I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, right? When we're in that state, the adrenals are constantly spitting out stress hormones, which means they get tired. They're getting taxed because they're overworking because they're keeping you in a survival state. And when you have adrenal fatigue, it starts to create insomnia where you can't relax. How many of you struggle to relax? How many of you struggle to actually sleep and stay asleep, right? It's because the nervous system is hypervigilant. It's like, oh, we're in stress mode. We can't be sleeping. We must survive, right? Um, the other thing, we're going to talk about poop for a hop second, you guys. I was chronically constipated. I was since childhood. Like as a child, this was something that I struggled with to the point to where I was going to doctors regularly because my, you know, bowel movements weren't happening. It was really bad. And I'm happy to tell you that now, you know, seven plus, I've been doing my trauma work for seven plus years. And I'm one of those healers. That's like, I'm a lifelong healer. I'm a lifelong learner. So I, I still practice what I preach day in and day out every day. Um, and so happy to share with you, my bowel movements are beautiful, <laughs> but it takes unwinding the nervous system. And so I just want to share that if there is any physical ailment that you're like, no matter what I try, this isn't working. Healing the nervous system and doing your trauma work might help in unwinding that physical ailment that you're, you're struggling with. But this is why relationships, these kinds of relationships can be toxic. You know, there's, there is a side of the mental health industry on social media. That's like, let's get away from using the word toxic, toxic people, toxic relationships. And I personally say in the case of abuse, no, it is toxic. And we should be calling it toxic because if we're going to call, you know, a toxin, like a poison that we can drink toxic, why? Because it hurts us. It could kill us. It can ruin our bodies. These relationships do too. These abusers do too. Toxic is toxic is toxic in my world. You know what I mean? And I think, I think that a lot of um, us women who have been through these relationships, we have such big hearts that we hesitate to, to label people. We hesitate, you know, to accept the fact that these abusers are abusers until we really get to that acceptance phase, right? And so when we hear people say, like, let's not call it toxic, that can also start to invalidate and make us feel more internalized shame, right? It ain't the vibe for me. It's toxic. It's toxic. Get out. We got to get out. All right. I want to just take a moment to check in. Any questions on anything I've shared so far today? The next part's going to be going into regulating your nervous system. I want to give you all a little bit of a win today by um, teaching you a bit about your survival states and then also showing, giving you a few tools to use to regulate your nervous system on the go as you travel. There's so many fun ways you can regulate your nervous system, especially while traveling. Um, and I, you know, I'm, we're going to do a little bit of education on signs of what survival state you're in. But before we get into that, I'm curious to know any questions on anything I've shared, signs of the abuse, the healing steps. What else did I say? What happens when one can't easily get out of a nurse, let's say at work? Okay. Yeah, totally. So when you're stuck at work with a narcissistic situation, um, your hands are kind of tied because I mean, one, if possible, let's get a new job. Like, that's what I'm going to say. But I want to make space for the fact that that's not always possible. And so the three tools, is it three tools? The two tools that are coming to mind right now, and I'm having a brain fart on the third one, is gray rocking and boundaries, right? Gray rock is, um, 
I keep saying I, I literally have a gray rock in my garden that I need to bring in for the times where I talk about gray rocking because it's such a good visual. But gray rocking is quite literally appearing like a gray rock. It's you're supposed to be boring because and this is this is the reason why I like to kind of paint this picture. A narcissist is fueled from your reactions, whether good or bad. So if you're like, hey, I'm doing great. How are you? They're like, yes. Okay. They're talking to me. They're engaging with me. That means they care about me. That means that, you know, they like me, whatever it is that the narcissist is telling themselves. And if you react negatively where you're like, don't talk to me that way, da, 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 right? They're also, wow, look at the power I have over this person. I know exactly how to push their buttons. Look at how much control, right? So it's like, you can't really win. So the way that you do win is by gray rocking them. You're like, I'm not going to give you a reaction at all. I'm going to be monotone. I'm going to limit my facial reactions and I'm going to keep the language to very matter of fact, boring answers. Yes. No, I'll figure it out. Thank you for letting me know. Right. It's very boom. Think about lawyer in a lawyer in court, right? Like put on your best Elle Woods at that final court scene where she's talking about the shower and the perm, right? Right. She's very like, but didn't you say you had a, a perm before? And we know if you've had a perm this many times, right? Please tell me everyone's seen Legally Blonde. Otherwise you're like, what is this girl talking about right now? Right? But she's just, she's stoic and she's asking questions, but she's not her bubbly Elwood self right there, right? So gray rocking is a huge way to manage narcissistic coworkers because again, you wanna limit, you wanna limit the contact and the way that you get a narc to leave you alone is by you don't engage with them. You're like, I'm gonna starve you right? I had a narcissistic boss once. And this was so funny because I was already in my business. So before I went full-time with my business, um, I had coworkers that followed me on social media and my boss even saw me on social media, but wouldn't follow me. Interesting. And, um, it was funny because my coworkers would watch him try and come after me. Like he would bring me gifts to try Like he was love bombing me to try and get me to engage. And I'd be like, thanks. Cool. And Everyone would be like, they are trying so hard, but you just don't give in. Yeah, I was gray rocking the you know what out of them, right? Because I wasn't, I saw right through the BS and I wasn't going to engage. And because of that, the he stayed away from me. Eventually he got the picture. Like, okay, I'm not gonna win with this one, right? So that's one tip. The other thing is boundaries. And the thing about boundaries that's a, a slippery slope with narcissists is we need to understand that when we set a boundary, the narc ain't gonna respect it, right? They aren't. Us setting boundaries is for us. It's not, we're not controlling the narcissist when we set a boundary. We can't force them to adhere to our boundaries, right? So this is what I mean. We need to set it and then we need to hold it. And the holding it part is where it gets challenging for uh, abuse survivors because we have, we're overly empathetic and we take over responsibility for their emotions, right? So one boundary setting is like, you know, uh, for example, I'm going to use one that a lot of narcissistic bosses love to hit you up outside of work hours because they want to see how much they can get you to work on their clock instead of respecting your time outside of work, right? And so a boundary you can set is, hey, after these hours, I'm off the clock. I'm not working. I won't be responding to emails. If it's an emergency, you can set that there. If you're in an, if you're in a field where, you know, let's say you're a doctor or some kind of thing where there needs to be some kind of contingency plan for an emergency. And you can set that boundary. Like this is the way to contact me. If it's an emergency, if it's not, I will not be responding. That's the expectation, right? If they continue to push you outside of your work hours, where they're trying to demand that of you, 
then one, take it to HR. Don't be scared of going to HR, right? Um, but two, you need to hold it, which means you're not replying at that time, right? So let's say they email you in the evening, ignore it. And then the next morning respond and say, hey, here's the answer to your question. Just a reminder, I will not be answering emails after this time, right? When we we get so, and when I say we, I'm saying trauma survivors get so nervous about holding our boundaries because it's like, but then they're going to get mad at me, but then they're going to be sad, but then they're going to, okay, not your problem. They are a grown ass adult. They are an adult. If they don't know how to deal with being sad, if they don't know how to deal with being frustrated, that is their problem, not yours. And in the confines of a working relationship, like there are standards of that working relationship by HR that you can lean on and you can use against them. So like read your employee manual, whatever that is, and uphold it. If it's a contracting relationship, read the contract and uphold that, right? And of course, if possible, GTFO, let's get let's get a new job, right? Okay, next question. What if you feel like you are aware of not liking the feeling that the narcissist is giving you, yet you're still there? What if you feel like you're aware of not liking, you're aware of not liking the feelings, yet you're still there? Yeah, I mean, this kind of goes back to what we're talking about. It's the emotional addiction aspect, right? Um, and maybe you weren't on quite yet when we were talking about that, but definitely watch the replay because we go into exactly this, you know? We need to understand, and I'll just recap this. When we logically can recognize that we don't like how we feel, we're using our the smallest part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. It's also the part that I said before, you know, this is the part that's not developed till we're 25. Till we're 25. And so when we can logically recognize we don't like how we're being treated and we don't like how we're feeling, but we are still there, it's the emotional addiction aspect. It's what's familiar to your nervous system. And so because it's familiar, you're going to subconsciously seek it out and stay because you know how to, meaning your nervous system, your nervous system knows how to survive in that environment. Whereas being single, right? Or having a healthy relationship with someone who's securely attached, that's new to you. You're like, I don't, my nervous system doesn't know how to show up there, right? And so because of that conditioning, it's safer in your mind and in your body to stay with something that's familiar, even if you logically don't like it. This is why logic, super great to have, doesn't do anything with trauma work. That's why I'm like, you know, when we talk about, modalities. Okay. I wasn't going to go into this, but this question poses a, a great kickoff to this concept. You know, just like we have pediatricians, they're doctors who specialize in, in seeing children, right? And we have an, an, an ear, nose, throat, an ENT for doctors who specialize with ear, nose, and throat. And we have a podiatrist with doctors who specialize in feet, right? Trauma, like therapy, not all therapy is equal. There are specific modalities for trauma work, and that is not cognitive behavioral therapy. It is not talk therapy. It is not journal prompts. It's not reframing your thoughts. It's not positive thinking. None of that is accessible. That's all using your logical mind. That's all using your logical mind. Trauma doesn't live in your logical mind. It lives in your survival brain, which is attached to your nervous system. So when we think of trauma modalities and, you know, I'm going to, I'm using a lot of jargon right now, but this is so important to understand. So please, if you're like, I don't know what that word means, like safe space, let me know in the chat. When we have top down processing versus bottom up processing in psychology, 
Top-down processing is brain to body. This is reframing thoughts. This is journaling. This is meditating, right? Bottom-up processing is nervous system to brain, which is what we want for trauma. And this is why a lot of people will maybe go to therapy or try journaling or try meditating and be like, this, this isn't working for me because your nervous system is in a state of survival. And until your nervous system is on board, your brain isn't going to follow suit. And this is exactly what this person MKS is asking here, right? My brain knows, but my body won't go. Why? Because you have 80% of your nerves that communicate body to brain, 20% of your nerves that communicate brain to body. So it's not good enough to just logically know only 20% of your brain is trying to be like, leave the relationship, leave the relationship. You know, this isn't good for you. Leave, leave, leave. You're so silly. Why do you keep going back? This is dumb. We need to stop doing this to ourselves. You can keep that thought process going all you want, but your body doesn't feel safe leaving. So it's not going to leave. But when you start with the bottom-up processing, when you start with the nervous system and exiting your survival mode, the brain can follow suit. But it all starts with your body. It's just how we're wired. It's science. You know what I'm saying? I hope that helps. But this, this is why I'm so passionate about nervous system work. Like if you ever were to go look at my Instagram lives, every single one, it's like nervous system work, nervous system work. We have to start there. 80% of our nerves live there. What's the bigger number, 80 or 20? And this is why when I work with clients, they make a bunch of progress with me really quickly. I'm glad that helps. It's because I'm just, I'm using what we know about the body in the processing that I do, right? It's, it's not, I wish it was witchcraft or some wizardry like Harry Potter, you know, like it's not anything fancy. It's just using how we're wired, how we're built as a species to our benefit, you know? So with that being said, if any other questions pop up, pop them in the chat. But I want to go into talking about regulating your nervous system and the survival states. So one, survival states, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, dissociate. Those are our survival states. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, dissociate. When we're in fight, flight, it's a hyper aroused state, right? This is where anxiety lives. This is where our anger lives. This is where our ruminating thoughts live, right? If, you're, if you have ruminating thoughts, you're in a fight, flight, hyper aroused state. So how do we soothe? We first, when we're in a hyper aroused state, need to express. And this is where a lot of people are like, ooh, I feel weird doing these things, punching pillows, screaming in the car, screaming in a pillow. Um, I always have this blanket on me at my chair because you can wring out fabric that you know, you know isn't gonna rip and you can just be like, oh, this is processing, this is expressing, right? We cannot, when we're in a hyper aroused state, think about it like this. When you've been mad at someone and they're like, calm down, does that ever work? No, right? You're like, now I'm even angrier. So when we are in a hyper aroused state, when we're anxious, when we have ruminating thoughts, when we're feeling angry and you start telling yourself, calm down, it's quite literally the same thing as someone else telling you to chill. Like it's not gonna work, right? And so for those of you who are like, shoulda, woulda, coulda, or maybe if I had said this, right? All those ruminating thoughts where you're thinking about the relationship, you trying to tell yourself, stop thinking about it. Why do I care? Isn't going to help. What will help are expressing the emotions. So I call this my Hulk smash state. That's just me. I'm a nerd. So I like to have little cutie nicknames for my states. But when I'm in that hyper aroused state, I do. I like to punch my couch, my pillows. I like to scream in my pillows. 
Um, you can do smashing plates. Like I like to sometimes if, if I have a new client, they'll go to the dollar store and get a couple few like cheap plates and they'll write on the plate, like a, a letter to their narcissistic ex and then like smash it, um, in a safe environment, of course, screaming in nature again, assuming you're in a safe environment with people around you that are okay with you doing that. Um, these are all ways that you can express yourself. I used to have a UFC gym membership. And when I first started healing from my narcissistic partner, I would imagine their face on the bag and just go to town, right? So find a thing that works for you. But before you even get to soothing and actually calming down, you have to express the state so that the stress response completes, right? Otherwise, you're just, you're not allowing your energy out. So it's really hard to think again, because you only have 20% of your nerves, right? That are wired brain to body. When you're angry, when you're anxious, when you're ruminating, you can't think your way to a better place because again, 20% of your nerves. So express it. Then once you're done expressing it, you can soothe out of it. And that's, that's when we can go into things like breath work, cold exposure, grounding in nature, which is so beautiful while traveling, using your five senses, also beautiful while traveling. And we'll go into some of those in a minute. When we talk about uh, freeze, fawn, dissociate, that's on the hypo aroused side of the nervous system. So that means we're shutting down. So I like to call this the Eeyore state, right? Has anyone seen Pooh Bear from childhood? Eeyore is always in a hypo aroused state. Thanks for noticing me, right? He's very tired in his energy, right? And so when we wake up and we're like, when can I go back to bed again? Or like, oh, I don't want to be awake right now, right? When we when we can think things like, I the only time I feel okay is when I'm asleep, right? When we feel like we're apathetic towards things that used to bring us joy, right? So like for me, some of my nerdy hobbies that I, I love, I play guitar, I play video games. I do adult coloring books, right? These things are really joyful for me, but I can tell I'm in a hypoaroused state when nothing sounds good. It's like, I don't want to do that either. That doesn't sound good. I don't want to do that either. That doesn't sound good, right? That's a hypoaroused state, meaning I'm freezed or dissociative or fawning. Fawning, just to stop and park it here real quick, fawning is a fancy way of saying people pleasing right? This is where um, a lot of survivors of narcissistic abuse find themselves in a fond state because narcissists groom you to be chronic people pleasers. Because again, like we were talking about before with the abuse cycles, we end up conforming aka people pleasing to avoid the abuse, right? So that's a fond response. I can't say that they're going to get mad at me. You're people pleasing, right? I can't set the boundary. They're going to be upset. You're people pleasing. I can't leave the relationship. It's going to hurt them. You're people pleasing, right? I can't say no. They're going to get mad at me. You're people pleasing. So um, that's the fawn, the fawn response. And then dissociate is this honestly lovely, intelligent system that our body has um, because back in the wild, it really served us. So dissociating, okay, let's talk. God, I'm such a nerd. Jurassic Park. Has everyone seen the movie Jurassic Park? Can you tell I like using media as a way to like paint these pictures? I just feel like it's a good visual, right? When we can fully understand. Jurassic Park, the movie. The first guy to get eaten by the T-Rex is the lawyer on the toilet, right? In the outhouse. And so our dissociative response is meant for something as drastic as that. And the reason it's meant for something as drastic as that is because when the lawyer is getting eaten by the T-Rex, he is completely dissociated. His body has basically numbed him out. He's playing dead. You pass out in your dissociative state. 
Um, because we want to numb ourselves from having that experience. It's like a natural anesthetic that our body gives us right now, the way that we can dissociate in narcissistic relationships, because although that our narcissist might not be a T-Rex biting a limb off, it feels very similarly in the body. And so this is when we start to zone out, right? We hyperfixate. This happens a lot. I just, I'm going to say a big, scary word. So all of us take a deep breath together. Just a little bit of a trigger warning here. Inhale. Exhale. A lot of sexual assault and rape happens here when we dissociate. Um, for me, I'm going to share just a little bit. I do have a, a part of my story that's here. And I just remember all I can remember from that evening is staring at the time on the clock while that was taking place. Like I just, I numbed out and I just stared at this clock, right? That's dissociation. Another form of dissociation that can show up is a third party self-objectification. So meaning like, have you ever felt like you're in your own music video and you're like watching yourself from a third party view? That's a form of dissociation as well. And so dissociation is our body trying to numb us out to avoid the pain of something that if we were present and in the body for, it would be really overwhelming and painful for our nervous system and body. That's what dissociation is used for. Now, the thing with trauma, when we talk about narcissistic trauma, is we get stuck in these states where we start dissociating even when we're driving down the street, right? Where we feel anxious, even if nothing's necessarily triggered us. Like for me, I used to say my default setting, my baseline was anxiety. I used to just be an anxious person all of the time. I was highly neurotic, like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? All the time. Even just making food for myself in my own kitchen, in my own apartment, completely alone. I was so used to being in an anxious state, my body would just go there, even if it wasn't triggered. And so this is why I always like to say, like, there is an answer. You don't need to live your life in these states. It's just a lot of trauma survivors normalize it because it's just how I am. I'm just an anxious person. I'm just a worry wart, right? I'm just a hopeless romantic. I'm just a giver. Babes, these are your trauma responses. They aren't your personality, right? So let's talk about regulating. I want to start by teaching you how to do a good old juicy belly breath. And then we're going to go into some of the other forms of um, regulating that I mentioned. And then we're going to do a fun Q&A. So let's practice. First, with belly breathing, this is the foundation to all breath work. We have been, I don't, you know, there's a part of me that jokes like the reason we breathe into our chest is because when we're at a pediatrician's office as babies, they put the stethoscope on our back up here and they're like, take a big breath. So us trying to be good little patients, we're like, okay, right. And then we start breathing into our chest. I'm not sure if that's 100% fact, but for some reason, a lot of us get conditioned into breathing shallowly into the chest, which actually subconsciously puts us into a state of anxiety, into a state of fight or flight. Because when we're taking shallow breaths, our nervous system says, something must be not right here. We must not be safe. So let me spit out some more stress hormones to try and help me get out of this situation, right? So even something as simple as not breathing fully correctly can put you into an anxious state. So when we breathe into the belly, and this is actually really fascinating because if you look at like a newborn baby fresh out of the womb, they naturally breathe out of their belly, not their chest. So it's really cute to watch that little baby's belly go up and down. But when we start with the belly breath, we this is why I always encourage one hand on chest, one hand on belly. So if you're free to do so and join me here, please do. But when we breathe into the belly, we want to kind of inflate the belly like a balloon. Or if you have had a baby before, think three months pregnant, right? 
And we want to keep the chest as still as possible. The chest will move because our diaphragm will lift, the ribs will shift, right? So it's impossible to keep our chest 100% short or still. But what we want to do is limit this top hand from moving while our bottom hand that's on our belly fully inflates as we inhale. So breathe in, fill that belly up with air, and then exhale. And again, breathe into the belly, push the belly button out. And then exhale, belly comes back to spine. Two more just to practice. Breathing in. And exhale. Last one, breathe in. And exhale. Now, if you're sitting upright or you're standing and you're like, oh, that's really hard to turn those muscles on because you're used to breathing into your chest, lay down, bend your knees so your feet are flat on the floor, you're in a hook lying position and try it that way. Because when you're not working against gravity by trying to sit up straight, it'll be easier to turn on the muscles by your belly to inflate the belly with air. But that's a belly breath. And this is a, a very soothing breath for your nervous system. I'm going to go into another breath that again, now that we know how to belly breathe, all of the breath works I'm about to teach you right now for soothing, we want to always put the air into the belly, not the chest, right? So that's why I start there. A really great breath work for anxiety is a puffer fish breath. There's another name for it that I can't remember um, at the moment. Oh, well, but what this is, is it's a double inhale through the nose and then you let your cheeks relax on the exhale. So it looks like this <laughs> horse breath. <laughs> I did it. And I was like, that's the other name. Double inhale in and then exhale. Let your cheeks go. Right. And you sometimes it's not so much to have your lips do the like it's not so much that it's more just to allow the cheeks to relax and the jaw to relax, right? How many of you hold tension in your jaw? This is a good one for you, right? Anxious people hold tension in their jaw. So double inhale. That's a really good one for anxiety. Um, just a reminder, puffer fish breath or uh, horse breath is the name of that one. The next one I want to teach you is a box breath. This one even is used in military. So like the Navy SEALs use this to stay soothed um, during combat. And we always start with a four count and then you can start to play extending this to a six count and eight count, but it's an even count breath. It goes inhale for four counts, hold the breath for four counts, exhale for four counts, and then hold your body empty of air for four counts, right? So the reason this is called a box breath is yes, it's even counts, but two, you can visualize a box as you do this. So inhale up one side, hold as you draw the second side of the square, exhale, draw the third side of the square, hold, draw the fourth side of the square, right? So it's up to you if you're a visual person and that helps to kind of draw that in your mind's eye, go for it. But we're just going to do a four count, inhale, hold, exhale, hold, all righty? So when you're ready, I'm going to find a tempo here. Okay. So when you're ready, we're going to start four, 
three, that's our tempo. Here we go. And inhale, two, three, four, hold your breath, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, and hold, two, three. Again, inhale, two, three, four, and hold, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, and hold. One more time. Inhale, two, three, four, hold. Exhale, two, three, four, and hold. Two, three, four. Relax. That's a box breath. So these are all very soothing breath works. Whichever one that you've liked the most today, take that and run with it. I'm going to teach you one energizing breath work. Okay, so when you're in a hypo aroused state and you're like, I'm feeling apathetic towards everything, I really recommend going for a walk. And if you're traveling, going for a walk in a new place is probably one of the most beautiful things. I actually, I have a secret. I've never been out of the country, you guys. I just got my passport for the first time. So it's happening this year. I'm going to Mexico, but I can only imagine how fun that would be like going to a new city and like walking. And the reason walking is so powerful is actually it bilaterally stimulates your brain. Yeah, we're flying. Um, and so walking is just so beautiful, uh, to help process some of the emotions coming up, but you can use a, a fire breath. Right. And so if you've ever seen, um, like yogis with the thumbs up like this breathing, right. Or this one, that's a fire breath. And so fire breathing is done completely through the nose and it is a belly breath. So your belly, when you inhale is going to inflate like a balloon. And then as you exhale, it's a little bit more of an ab contraction, almost like you got punched in the stomach, right? So that belly's going to snap into the spine really quickly. So just place a hand on your chest and a hand on your belly, just to practice. We're going to do 10 of these together. Okay. We're going to do it a little bit slower just to get the action of the belly and then we'll speed it up. Okay. So just 10 fire breaths in and out the nose. Ready? And relax. So that one feels really punchy in the belly, right? In, out, in, out, in, out, right? So now let's do another 10, a little bit faster. And you're going to start to see how this warms the body, which is why we like to use it for a freeze fawn state, right? Here we go. And How are we feeling with that one? Anyone? I'm just curious to know how everyone's feeling with the fire breath. Feeling okay? Now to take this up a notch, you can do a thumbs up, high V, pinch your shoulder blades like you're trying to hold a toothbrush behind your shoulder blades, okay? And it's the same motion with the belly. Ready? And... <laughs> Drop your arms. Shake it out. How are we feeling? Are we feeling sweaty? Are we feeling tingly, right? We should be feeling a little warm. Yeah, that's why it's called a fire breath. It's to stoke the internal flames of the nervous system, right? Let's try with the pumping arms in front, right? Huh, huh, right? Inhale, the arms go up. Exhale, you pull your elbows back. Inhale, the arms go up. Exhale, you pull the arms back. Ready? So we're going to do 10 pumps here. Ready? And... Relax. I am sweating. 
I'm curious to know how you ladies are doing. Let's do that one one more time just to practice. Oops, I dropped my blanket. Okay, ready, set, go. Relax. Whew, that's a fire breath. So now that we've done that, I want to talk about five senses grounding because it's a beautiful way to ground when you're on an airplane, when you're on a boat, when you're on a train. I'm thinking of like green eggs and ham, Sam I am, right? It's it's that for breath work. Um, so five senses grounding is exactly what it sounds like. You're using your five senses to ground you into your body. And the reason this works is you cannot be thinking about what you are seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and all of that touching and ruminating on something else at the same time. It's really challenging for your brain to do that. Right. So the way that we ground is by using different, um, you can use essential oils. You can use a candle to smell. You can use your hair. You can use a dryer sheet, right? But what you want to do is take the time to take a big inhale, smell whatever it is you smell around you. And then you want to try and label the characteristics of that smell. Is it earthy? Is it floral? Is it sweet? Right? Is it spicy? Is it herby? Right? Because when we articulate those words, again, it's hard for us to be present and label uh, use descriptive language like that while ruminating simultaneously. So that's why it works when we look at C. So let's pretend you're on a plane and it's like, I see, a you know, suitcase luggage on the ground underneath someone's compartment in front of me. Right. What does it look like? Okay. It's black. It's rectangular. I can't see through it. It has orange lining. It has, um, you know, a duffel bag strap and, uh, carrying strap. When we start to get really descriptive with what we're seeing, instead of just like bag, plane, window, right? Again, our brains can't ruminate while we start to hyper-focus on these different descriptive elements. Okay. And you use that for all of your senses, taste, take a sip of water, take a sip of whatever you're drinking or take a bite of your meal savor it. What am I tasting? What are the textures? Where in my mouth do I feel these sensations? right? And so on and so forth. You do that for everything. What am I hearing? Okay. I'm hearing the lawnmower. Great. What else am I hearing? I'm hearing my dog walk around my apartment. I'm hearing my neighbor talk outside by the pool. I'm hearing the birds chirp. Okay, great. Right. When we can take the time to get really specific on the different things we're hearing, same thing. We can't ruminate. All right. That's it for my spiel. Let's talk. Does anyone have any questions that I can help you with? This is a lot. This is like drinking out of a fire hose. And since it's a small group, you're welcome to unmute yourself. Yeah. What can I do for okay, you? Okay, cool. I was already. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. It's been um, uh, like going through the information again. Um, things that I already knew, but for some reason, like when you go through that again it feels new so um thank you for that for your time and for your experience because um it brought that connection with you before um i just thought i was either crazy because i would bump bump into the same sort of people right and i thought i was damaged 
and just I was like okay this is my fault and this is my fate like this is this is going to be like that forever I wouldn't even validate whatever trauma I had so now I I'm allowing myself to recognize and see like oh crap these happen it happens like it happens and most importantly um I can work and heal yeah so that's thank you so much I I took so many notes <laughs> like oh so thank you I'll come to El Salvador next time <laughs> okay cool done I will thanks for the invite thank you. <laughs> of course um any questions I can answer for anybody while we're here together don't be shy how can we deal with the fact that the narc tends to charm those around us and it can be hard to validate our story for ourselves when everyone around you is telling you they don't believe it? They've never acted like that with them. Totally. Beautiful question. This is why community is so important. This is exactly why I have my community and like we exactly this. Even people who actually adore us and truly love us and have our best interest in mind, they don't know what they don't know. And if they haven't experienced narcissistic abuse ever before, if they haven't seen the narcissistically abusive side of this person before, they may in, in an unintentionally invalidate, gaslight you, you know, not trying to harm you further. It feels that way. Right. But again, they don't know what they don't know. And so when we talk about having to deal this is where the expression and emotional processing really comes in because we can't just deal with it. We can't just like accept the fact that it's like, cool, no one believes me and what I've been through. That's really hard to just let go with and deal. And so don't, don't. What I like to say is instead allow the anger and the frustration and the pain that comes up with that to be processed, confront it, say, you know what? And like, again, in the privacy of your own home or with a practitioner, but like this hurts. And it's, it's okay that it hurts. It's supposed to hurt. You know, I was saying this, um, I can't remember where I was saying this, but maybe on a TikTok live where I was like, you know, the fact that you, everyone in here who's watching the replay, whoever, the fact that you give a damn, like you have a heart and you care about how you impact other people. And like, this is what sets you apart from the narcissist. If you were emotionally numb, you wouldn't be here, Right. And so honor your emotions and celebrate your emotions, no matter how painful they are, because the fact that you even have them sets you apart from the narcissist to begin with, right? You have a, a humanness to you. You have a soul to you. You have this kind of care and compassion for others around you. That's a beautiful quality to have. So honor it. And when other people can't see it, and that brings up these feelings of betrayal, this feeling of not being seen, heard, understood, right? And those are very painful things to experience. You got to sit with the emotions tied into that, the sadness, the anger, the frustration, the annoyance, the, 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 all of it, right. The betrayal. And so that's where I say, like, take those emotions to the couch, take those meaning like punch the punch, the couch, punch the pillows, cry, honor it, surrender to your emotions, the emotion, you know, there's this fact in science where emotions only last in the body 90 seconds. Isn't that wild? A minute and a half. But the reason they linger is because we repress them. I can't feel that way. I'm stupid for why am I sad? Oh my God, I shouldn't be sad. They were so horrible to me. Why do I care, right? And we get stuck in these thought loops that quite literally hold us captive from allowing ourselves to process and let go of the emotion, right? But the only way we let go of it is sitting with it. So when these, when people around you are, are invalidating you or they aren't trusting your experience, one, 
they aren't for you. Find a community of people who have been through what you've been through. And I have a free Facebook community if you want to come hang out with me, you know, and share your story there. So like there are resources out there that are free that you can get into and plug into, you know, and then if it's, if it's financially available to you, get into a healing membership, you know, where again, now you're in a group of like-minded souls that are all committing and processing the same emotions and trauma that you're also processing. And then you guys, you bond over that because it can feel alone. It can feel alone when other people don't get it. They haven't seen it. And there is an answer to that. And it is in community. And it's also in honoring your emotions as they come up, you know? Um, yeah. You know, and then the other thing that I want to say to this question is just to recognize the fact that this is all by design. It's all by design by the narcissist. They want this, especially covert narcs, right? They, they do this to make you feel more crazy. They do this to make you feel more crazy. So acknowledging like this is all a tactic that's and, and to be able to disconnect from it personally, because that's the thing for us survivors of narcissistic trauma. It feels so personal. The relationship was real for us. We really did love them. We really did care about them. It was real for you. Honor that just because it wasn't real for the narc and it was all a you know, um, a tactic to be able to get out of you what they wanted out of you, you know, for them, it wasn't personal. You were just a means to an end, but for you, it highly was personal because you did truly care and you did truly love. So again, honor that within you and then understand and start to recognize that this smear campaign type thing that can happen. It's all a tactic to get more of a rouse out of you. And so don't let them win by just ignoring it right? The only way the narcissist wins is if you continue to play their game. So stop playing it. You know, that should be a piece of content. <laughs> Hopefully I remember that. Um, any other questions before we hop off today? This was so great. Okay. Loves. I think that's it. I think we're good. I'm going to give it one more second just to see, but thank you so much, you guys for spending time with me today and joining us here at salty club for this fun little I mean, fun, heavy combo on narcissistic abuse and how to unwind it and start the healing process. I'm so happy that you spent time with me. And if you're not already, please feel free to join me on Instagram or TikTok. My handle's at the Alex Scott spelled just the way. Oh, just kidding. I'm not on my Zoom, so I'll put it in the chat. And so feel free to hang out with me there. Um, and if you do want to work with me, feel free to join one of my programs. I, I, I really try and make them cost effective because I understand financial abuse can be a thing too. So just reach out if you need any specific support, sending you all light and love and I'll see you around. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by The Salty Club, hosted by me, Caitlin Creeper and sound and editing by Matyosh Gomes.